You're listening to Season 2, Episode 20 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. Though I'm personally not very good at it, I so appreciate the art of screenplay writing, creating narratives for movies. I have a couple of friends who write screenplays as a full-time gig, and when I hear them talk about what goes into creating a really great script, you realize there's just a lot going on there. It's really hard. Of course, you have the story and the characters and their motivations. You're setting a scenery and a time and place. But then there's also all these underlying mechanics that make a story go. And one of the truisms when writing a screenplay, and look, not all movies follow this, but a lot of them do, is that the opening scene should be in dialogue with the last scene. In some ways, they should be opposites of one another. It's almost as though the opening scene hints to what the end is going to be, even though we don't explicitly know where it's going to go. And you see this all the time, especially in big Hollywood movies. Take, for example, a movie like Elf, that Will Ferrell holiday movie that I suspect most of us have seen or you're at least familiar with. So in the movie Elf, Will Ferrell, he plays a human who's become an elf and hijinks ensue. And in the opening scene, we see a baby. And this baby is in an orphanage and everything about this opening scene is simply trying to communicate aloneness. He is alone. This orphaned baby isn't wearing any clothes other than a single diaper, and he's very, very vulnerable. He's shot in a crib, and that crib is made to look like a cage, so it's really increasing the volume on his isolation. And then they went a little bit further, and they lit him from above with a spotlight, singling him out against everything else. He couldn't be more alone. And this stands in perfect contrast to the final scene, where through the course of the movie, he is now being shown with his North Pole adopted family, his biological family with which he's been reunited, and he's even started his own family. He has a wife now and a new baby. They even threw in a pet penguin just for good measure. I mean, you couldn't cram more family and togetherness into a frame if you tried. In the beginning, alone, and in the end, together. Again, great stories do this all the time. They anticipate in the beginning, they realize in the end. Opening scene, looking up the mountain. Ending scene, you're at the top of the mountain. Opening scene, train leaves. Ending scene, train returns, on and on. And just this past week, I had one of these real-life movie moments where they were perfectly bookended in this way. I'm fully aware that we all, over the past couple of years, have our own stories to tell. But it does seem as though a chapter of our lives, you know, with COVID and quarantine, etc., that the pandemic chapter of our lives has finally come to an end, at least hopefully. And look, I'm not going to regale you with a bunch of COVID stories, I promise. But I do remember back in March of 2020 when I first found out that COVID was air quotes a thing. I was with my company, Rain, down in Florida, and we were doing this really great work with Disney at the time. And I'll tell you, it was some of the most exciting projects I've ever really been a part of. It was so much fun being there together with my team and, and the Disney team. And there were just all of these possibilities. Everyone was excited. 
Anyway, we were out at dinner, and COVID was just sort of in the background, something we were keeping an eye on, but it didn't seem to be a full-blown pandemic. But then all of a sudden during dinner, everybody got a text message at the same time. It was like the bat phone had gone off or something. All of them looked down and were like, oh my gosh, the park is going to close. Tomorrow is going to be the last day it's opened. It was completely surreal. And again, I know we all have our COVID stories. But it was really pretty nuts that Disney is closing. I mean, that didn't seem possible. I ended up spending the very last day that the park was open, riding rides and exploring the park. But it was such a bizarre juxtaposition. Because on the one hand, you had, you know, joy, fun, all the things that Disney does well, that was mixed with this sort of ominous apocalypse that is upon us, where every ride had the double-edged sword of being fun, but also may ultimately kill you. And I remember then the very next day getting on a plane, being handed a mask, and seeing gallons of Purell everywhere. That was my opening scene of the pandemic. A text message saying the pandemic is real, getting on a plane, being given a mask, being slicked up with a sheen of Purell. And then last week, last week was the final scene, a perfect movie-esque contrast. I was flying back from Michigan, and just as I was boarding, I got a text message saying that we no longer have to wear masks. A beginning and an end. And it's funny because one of the reasons that this is such a powerful storytelling device is because stories, they're about transformation. Something has to change. And when I think about my last two years, everything has changed. My relationships have changed. My locations have changed. Babies have been born. Friends have been lost. I've experienced some of the highest highs, but also some of the lowest lows that I have no idea how I even escaped. Boarding a plane with a mask two years ago, exiting a plane without one last week. And as I take a moment to reflect on the last two years of this chapter of our movie, I just think that we were all trying to find ways to cope in all these different ways. I actually looked back over Google Trends to see which topics were spiking over the pandemic and... If you look back to around March or April of 2020, there's this really big spike around the term Year of Wonder. This is in reference to the year 1665. That's when Europe was going through the Black Plague. And then, as we have over the past couple of years, they also went into a quarantine. And it was during that moment of isolation, that's when Isaac Newton famously made a series of discoveries that shaped the next 300 plus years. Here's Neil deGrasse Tyson summing up that year of wonder. The most successful scientists in the history of the world are those who pose the right questions. Newton, his questions reached into the soul of the universe, and he pulled out insights and wisdom that transformed our understanding of our place in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Somebody said, Ike, why is it that planets orbit in the shape you call ellipses rather than circles? Why that shape? And he says, you know, I'll get back to you on that. Goes away for a few months, come back. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. Here's why gravity produces ellipses for orbits. The guy said, well, how did you find figure that out? Well, I had to invent this new kind of mathematics to do it. He invented calculus. Most of us <laughs> sweat through it for multiple years in school just to learn it. He invented it practically on a dare. He discovered the laws of motion, the laws of gravity, the laws of optics. Then he turned 26. I commune through time as I read Isaac Newton transporting me into a time and a place where people were just figuring out 
how this universe worked. Laws of optics, motion, and gravity invented calculus, and then he turned 26. Absolutely ridiculous. And all of it done in a single year over quarantine. I always find discoveries, though, to be so fascinating. Because, yeah, Newton was genuinely a genius in the truest sense of the word. He might possibly be the smartest person who's ever walked the face of the planet. But even he himself said that, quote, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of giants. I've always loved the implicit humility in that quote because despite being above everybody else, he still gave credit to those who came before him. Discoveries, even prodigious ones, they are the end of a long story, not the beginning. Said differently, discoveries, they're the last scene of the movie, not the first. So what's the first scene? Where did these ideas begin? And who are these giants that he's referring to? Well, for sure, you obviously have all the scientists and mathematicians that came before him. I mean, there's too many to even bother listing. But perhaps the true opening scene, maybe it didn't come from the world of science at all, but rather from the world of art. It's my belief that art lives in the future. It serves as something of a collectivist dream. It speaks in images that we have to interpret over time. Artists, they are soothsayers in a sense. And this mystical nature of art is why I believe that contemporary art, meaning art that was made this month, it's almost always so incredibly hard to understand. If you go to a contemporary art museum, you're gonna probably be scratching your head. Art needs time for its true meaning to emerge. And I think that's also why so many famous artists, they end up dying broke and without notoriety in their time. Van Gogh, Rembrandt, Vermeer, the list is endless. That's the rule, far more than it's the exception. And only years later do we realize what these artists, what they actually meant, and what the true value of their work actually was. Time brings forth the meaning of their dreams. Art is the first scene. The left brain, it intuits the right, Visuals come first, and then writing, logic, and math. Art is the first scene of progress. So let's look at this in practice. Before Newton's discoveries, the art world had been wrestling with how best to represent reality. And so when you think back to ancient art, most of the work for centuries, it was very flat kind of like hieroglyphics, where bodies were contorted and stuck flatly to a page. But as the Renaissance emerged in the late 1300s, so too did perspective drawing. Perspective. You know, that's when you draw boxes so they look like they're floating in space, and the lines, they can taper back to a vanishing point on the horizon. That's perspective drawing. Or perhaps when you were in middle school and your art teacher had you draw a street where all the lines went back to a single point way back on the horizon. Again, that's perspective. And it was all the rage during the Renaissance. And conceptually, what perspective drawing did is it created art from what's called a single privileged viewpoint. A single privileged viewpoint is this idea where the artist, the artist sits in a fixed place and maps out with painful rationality these perspective lines. You can literally use a ruler to do this, and then sometimes it really feels more like drafting than sketching. It's very laborious at times. And 
this approach to art, this was the thrust of art for the century or more before Newton and his discoveries, drawing from the single privileged view. But listen to how Newton described his methodology for discovery. He's using very similar language. Newton called his view of the world as coming from, quote, the inertial frame of reference. And this is where the scientist is sitting in a privileged fixed space. He's a fixed observer, and he's measuring the entire world from only that point of view. Newton's inertial frame of reference was exactly like the perspectivist view of art, but art came first. Art was the opening scene. And this is a pattern we see time and time again. Art is the opening scene of a new idea, and science is the final. Art hints, and science explains. Newton's mechanistic fixed viewpoint of the world held for the next 300 plus years, as did perspectival drawing in the world of art. But in the 1800s, this tyranny of logic is started to crack a little bit. Artists started to yet again intuit a deeper understanding of the world, that something new was on the horizon. And they started to question the very nature of time and space in interesting and, in frankly, kind of bizarre ways. Certainly at the time, it was very weird. As scientists later discovered, Newton's laws, they don't explain the entirety of our existence. But again, it was the art world that intuited this revelation years earlier. One of my favorite paintings, just because it's so bizarre, is from an artist named Manet. And in 1863, he created this painting uh, that's called The Luncheon on the Grass. It's odd, even by today's standards. Uh, but critics at the time, they hated it. And primarily because the perspective that's on display there is absolutely terrible. If you Google this painting, Luncheon on the Grass, you'll see that there's a woman in the background. And if you correct it for perspective, if the perspective shown was correct, that woman would have to be nine feet tall for this painting to make any sense. But Manet, he was a master of perspective, uh, an expert craftsman. So obviously, this was a decision. It was very intentional. It was his way of saying that there's more to art than this world of perspective and rationality. Other artists like Cezanne started to play with multiple perspectives, views that would make no sense in the world as we understood it at the time. All of these different angles and perspectives happening in one painting. Manet, Monet, that water lilies guy, Cezanne, all of these artists, they created the opening scene for 20th century physics, the new physics as it was called, our new understanding of the way the world worked and our role within it. In 1905, Einstein expressed these ideas that the artists were exploring decades earlier in his seminal paper on the special theory of relativity. In some ways, this paper was the final scene from the previous decade plus of artistic exploration. His work was the conclusion of the opening artistic scene. And one of the biggest ideas that Einstein laid out, and believe me, I'm going to keep this very high level and simple, but yeah, one of the biggest ideas was that instead of the universe having this fixed inertial frame of reference, as Newton had suggested, that there are actually multiple views happening at the same time, and each of these viewpoints are all equal. 
And the famous thought exercise that Einstein had when he was imagining himself riding on a beam of light. And from this perspective on the beam, things would look a certain way, but to an external viewer, the same event would look quite a bit different. Said very, very simply, there could be an infinite number of perspectives that are all true at the same time, not just one fixed view as Newton had suggested. Opening scene, artists were playing with multiple perspectives in one painting. Closing scene, Einstein showing that there are multiple perspectives that are all true at the same time. And one of the coolest things about Einstein's equations is that the closer to the speed of light a particle moves, the more that time, it matters. Time. This is referred to as the fourth dimension. And in 4D space, you can have a past, a present, and a future all happening at the same time. And this was obviously quite the breakthrough, as you might imagine. It's so counterintuitive as so many quantum ideas are. Before the scientific breakthrough, though, artists were yet again intuiting this emerging truth. Famously, Picasso brought forth the art movement that you've probably at least heard of called Cubism. And Cubism is this idea that you can show an object not only from multiple angles at the same time, you know, the top, the side, the front, all at one moment, but also that you could show multiple points of time condensed down into a single frame. I mean, this was a revolutionary idea. And one of the best cubist examples of multiple points in time being shown on one canvas, the past, the present, and the future, is a painting called Nude Descending Staircase by Marcel Duchamp. If you ever go to the MoMA in New York, it's on display there. And this painting, it shows in this cubist aesthetic a figure coming down a staircase. And it's shown from multiple perspectives and multiple moments in time all at once. This is exactly what physicists discovered to be true only a couple of years later. Opening scene, artists like Picasso and the Cubist showed past, present, and future in one painting. Closing scene, scientists discovering that the fourth dimension creates this phenomenon mathematically. The beginning and the end. When I think about all of these topics that we've just discussed, that Art intuits and science explains that discovery is not a one-time event, but rather it's a narrative that has a beginning with art and an end with science. All of these things, I just think about them all the time. The mystical and the rational are actually a lot closer than we might realize because they're just simply two ways of seeing the same thing. The right brain needs the left and the left needs the right. In some ways, they're just simply different types of language. Language. Maybe all of this just simply comes down to that. When you think about a baby and they're given a bottle, that child is not yet thinking with words. Instead, they're thinking with images. So they see the white bottle and then they start to associate that shape, that image with food, sustenance, comfort, etc. But then, as the child begins to learn words around age two, these words, they're not just words, but they actually become the way that we think. This is often referred to as the tyranny of language. Words just take over. And obviously, this serves us really well because words have shared meaning. It allows us to communicate effectively. But words, they really require, in some sense, for an idea 
to have already been discovered because it's easier to describe the phenomenon of the baby bottle with words after the fact than trying to explain something that hasn't yet happened, where there's no shared meaning. Artists, because they think in images, they help us as a society and as a people start to create a sensitivity and a sensibility for what's coming before we have the words to express it. I love this quote from the poet Ezra Pound, where he said that artists are, quote, the antennas of the race. The artist is the first to see the world in a new way, and because there aren't yet words, they use image, metaphor, to pull our consciousness forward. The implications of this are profound. Not only does this put into perspective one of the roles of art in general, but it also gives us, as just regular people on a Tuesday, tactics to explore the unknown inside of our own lives and organizations. I often do this when I brainstorm with new clients, where I'll bring out a stack of images and I'll spread them all over the table and ask them to describe the problem using pictures. It forces us to think less literally. It makes us use metaphor and symbolism instead of you know spreadsheets and research documents. That's why personally, things like vision boards are often helpful for people to think through the unknown. Like male and female, the same but different, so too are art and science, two ways of knowing that are the same but different. One starts the story and the other completes it. Intuition and discovery. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of this podcast or check out any number of our television shows, check out our website, americabydesigntv.com. We're releasing new episodes of Fail Hard every Tuesday, so be sure to hit subscribe now to stay up to speed. And lastly, if you have any thoughts or suggestions for the show or for myself, uh, feel free to shoot me a note. Hello at willhall.co. We'll see you next Tuesday.